the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you are listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. All you have to do is call us. We love your live calls. 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call toll-free if you're outside the local area by calling 877-630-KSL. That's 630-5757. Uh, you can email your question by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just push the call now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend. We did, as you know, from our last programs and our live program from the Men's Retreat, uh, we uh, had 200 men. There's something about hearing 200 men sing loudly to the Lord. It really was a great time. For those of you who were praying, thank you very much for your prayers. Uh, the Lord answered. Some men got saved. Some men that were invited guests of other uh, men in the church. Um, uh, it's amazing how God always meets them. And we had a really, really, really great time. Uh, I got to meet some of you. There were a few of you from the uh, radio audience that, that showed up and we're grateful that you did. I hope you were blessed. It really was a great time. Um, because it's Monday, a couple of things that are going on I want to tell you about tonight, of course, is our men's and women's uh, and youth uh, high school and junior high school age Monday night Bible studies. Uh, ladies, Jocelyn Makasadia will be teaching tonight for you. Pastor Ken has the men and then our youth pastor uh, Nellie Van Sickle will, will uh, be with high schoolers and Chris Sanchez with the junior hires. We have child care, of course, available. Your kids will learn about Jesus as well. So that's at 7 o'clock. We'd love to have you here. The ladies portion will be live streamed at calvarysa.com. Uh, also, there's something I'd like to, to invite you to as well for uh, those of you who are parents of 6th grade to 12th grade girls. Seven, I'm sorry, I just got corrected. 7th grade to 12th grade girls. We're going to have a young women's conference this Saturday here in our sanctuary from 1 o'clock until 4 o'clock. Uh, our high school pastor and his wife will be putting it on. And uh, I think it's really worthwhile. It's absolutely free. It'll cost you nothing. Um, we're going to teach these young women how to live for and walk with Jesus in a world that's uh, constantly pulling them away. We don't do things like this often. I kept telling them, not an event church, but we have so many events, it seems like we're becoming more and more that way. But this is an important one. So from 7th grade to 12th grade, if you've got a young woman in your house, uh, this would be a great opportunity for her to get a perspective that's really all about Jesus all the time, and you are invited. If you have any questions, call the church office at 658-8337, and they will give you 
details. And I haven't looked, but I'm assuming there's information on our website about the conference uh, this weekend as well. If not, there will be uh, by this time tomorrow. So um, this coming Saturday, we would appreciate it. A couple of other things, then we'll get to some questions while we await your phone calls. Uh, I would appreciate prayers for Paula. She's got a busy time. Uh, next week, uh, our pastor's wives retreat uh, uh, is going on, and that's always a great time for them. Uh, the following week, um, Paula and a bunch of our ladies are going to Reynosa, Mexico, a, plant, a church that we planted there, uh, and they're going to be putting on a women's retreat there. And uh, we would always appreciate your prayers for their safe travel and all that. But uh, it is really a blessing to be able to go over there and and uh, hang out. So that's what they're going to be able to do. I'd appreciate your prayers. Okay, one more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is, um, uh-oh, I think this is a repentance phone call. we got Felipe online. With <laughs> Felipe, thanks for calling. You're on the air. <laughs> Hello, Pastor Ron. You're right. Uh, <laughs> in the radio audience, I did not call last week. But I'm calling to uh, alert you for next year. Purpose in your heart right now to come out to the men's retreat. Um, it's, it's a life-changing experience. It changed my life. And, and I haven't been the same ever since. In fact, I've invited several people since then uh, and... and Quite a few of them have gotten saved. I invited a, a, a friend of mine from California, and, and he got saved uh, this weekend. So I promise you guys, if you go with, with, your, with your mind open and ready to accept Jesus Christ, you will meet him there. And uh, that's all i got to say, Pastor Ron. I love you. Thank you for uh, your, the way you lead us, the way you feed us. And just, uh, I just thank you for your faithfulness. I love you. Thank you, Felipe. Uh, before you head out, before you head out, uh, yes, how sir. would you describe how would you describe the the men's conference or the men's retreat in terms of of what would somebody expect if they walk in a bunch of goofy men uh, worshiping Jesus? What what really had an impact on you? What had an impact on me was just the. The love that I felt, I've never, and I can't even, I can't describe it to you. I tried to describe it to my friend uh, before we went, and he was blown away by the love that was shown to him and just seeing, like you said, Pastor Ron, 200 men worshiping the Lord. There's nothing like it. I would just stop, and it'd bring tears to my eyes. Uh, there's nothing like it. And these guys aren't goofy. We've got some big guys in our church, and they're <laughs> loving the Lord like you wouldn't believe. It is just, it's life-changing, and it, it, it should be a beautiful sight. I can't wait to go next year. Felipe, thank you very much. God bless you, man. And we were just teasing for about, uh, thanks, Felipe. We were just teasing Felipe last week. This is the first year he hasn't called the program and sort of exhorted everybody to come to the to the retreat. Um, and so when I saw him, I said, boy, you're in trouble with Paula. She kept expecting your phone call. And, uh, and so we were kidding, but uh, he gave us a follow-up. So, Felipe, thank you very, very much. It really was a great retreat. Here is a question from our email inbox from Robert. Are Bibles such as the King James and the New King James version no good because they include the comma Johannium, which is not God-breathed scripture? I'm concerned because I've always liked the New King James, but I recently found out about the added words in 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 that are not God-breathed, and scripture is not to be added to or changed. Robert, a couple of things. If you like your New King James, keep it. Um, um, you, you are right about the words in First uh, John chapter five verse seven. I'll give you a little bit of information about that in a moment. Uh, but um, you know these were words that were added by the translators uh, in the 16th century uh, with a great deal of pressure uh, from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and the reason they were added is because they believed that there needed to be um, a, a specific direct reference to the Trinity 
And so that's why it was included in that. It is almost certain that those words do not belong there. Let me read the, that passage to you um, from the New King James, uh, and then I'll read it from one of the newer translations that uh, is more uh, accurate. First uh, John 5, 7 says, For there are three, and this is the New King James, Robert, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Now, those are the words that were added. Uh, and the and there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, the blood. And these three agree as one. Here is, um, let me get to the a newer version. It says, verse 7 says, only for there are three that testify. Then verse 8 says, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. So the added words of the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. While the doctrine stated in in the New King James and King James Version, Robert, is accurate. Uh, It is not a representative translation of um, of what the manuscript said. So uh, I think it's one of those things that you really have to be careful of and look at them, but they do no damage to the essential doctrines of our uh, faith. While it would certainly be convenient for there to be an explicit statement confirming the Trinity in the Bible, um, uh, almost certainly uh, the Kamo Johannian was not a part of 1 John. Uh, most likely it was uh, some ancient scribe, whether he did it intentionally or not. They were added to the Latin manuscripts. And by the way, the Latin manuscripts are the ones that are most affected. Um, um, uh, strangely, not the, 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 the Vulgate, uh, the Latin Vulgate. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's wrong to add, God's, to, to add to God's word, but it does not negate the rest of the work of the New King James. So the New King James is not a problem for you at all. If you enjoy it, continue to enjoy it at all. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question from Rose from our mobile app. Uh, last Wednesday, a question came about Jeremiah 10, I think. Uh, it's not Jeremiah 10, it's Jeremiah 11, but you're close. Uh, I know the plans I have for you. We all know the verse. Uh, isn't that the same principle in Ephesians chapter 2.10? We are his workmanship. I thought we can stand on each scripture. Am I wrong? Um, Rose, uh, you're, you're only wrong insofar as um, you can't divorce the passage of scripture from the context of that passage. Well, it's true that God knows the plans he has for us and his plans are to, to, to certainly not to harm us, but to prosper us, to bless us. Um, uh, that was not at all what he was saying uh, through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, to understand that, Jeremiah was a, a, a captivity prophet. He happened to be prophesying from Jerusalem. Ezekiel was his counterpart, and Ezekiel was in Babylon pretty much saying the same things. But in this particular case, uh, he was telling Jeremiah, who was uh, at this point uh, bemoaning the fact that it looked like Israel was going to be completely destroyed and wiped out. And nobody was listening to it. Imagine how discouraging it was for Jeremiah. Uh, for, for a 42 or so year ministry, Jeremiah never once had anybody change their mind based on anything that he said. He didn't have followers. He didn't have disciples. From worldly perspective, we would say his was one of the most f- failure, uh, one of uh, the most failing ministries that we read about in Scripture, but he was faithful to declare God's Word. And when Jeremiah said, nobody's listening to me, the end is near, God was basically, don't worry, I've got plans. Now, we're not told that specifically. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship. Uh, his, His expression of beauty, creative expression of beauty, we're his poem. We get our English word poem from the word in Greek translated workmanship. Um, we can stand on that scripture in a New Testament construct because the context of it is our salvation 
and then how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So they're two completely separate things. And any time, Rose, that we take the context away and apply it, uh, I, the, the other example I gave that is the one that's um, the Chronicles passage uh, that's used every national prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Well, we, we don't have that context right because that's not written for us. Now, we can say we're to pray without ceasing. We can also say that we're taught uh, continue to be humble. Jesus even said the only autobiographical statement he ever made about himself was, was learn from me for I am humble. My, my yoke is easy. So what we've got to do is, is, is be good students of the word. And so we cannot stand on a scripture given to Israel in a completely foreign context to us. It's important we understand it. It's important we understand that it's the heart of God. And you're right, Rose, it's true that that same heart of God is expressed in different ways to us in our New Testament. But we've got to be good students. And that begins with understanding to whom God was speaking or to whom the author was writing. Uh, If we mess that up, then we're going to completely go wrong. And I just think it's bad biblical exegesis. In fact, it's not exegesis at all. It's eisegesis. Let's go to line one, John from Spring Branch, Texas. John, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes, I had a quick question, and then I'll uh, hang up and listen to you on the radio. Uh, okay. I was wondering your opinion on uh, like the Book of Enoch and uh, the Maccabees that they said they were originally part of the gospel, or um, I was just wondering if you know much about it and what's your thoughts about someone studying it who studies the Bible? Yeah, uh, thank you, John. I can do that. I appreciate your interest. Um, the, the Book of Enoch, uh, while while there is great value, and, and let me even let me use Maccabees. Uh, there's great historical value, but what we've got to understand, John, is that those books are not written by God. They were never part of the Scripture. The Catholic Church added them, and and the reason that those books in the Catholic Church were added, they they will say we took them away, but they were added simply because those books had some writings in them that would justify some aberrant Catholic doctrine. So if we understand uh, what those books, what their value is, um, their value is historical, but it's not inerrant, it's not the Word of God. It is um, um, simply um, written by men, and of course because it's written by men, it has errors, and it's in, uh, uh, contradicts uh, some of the things that are written in part of Scripture that we know is from the Lord. So there's value in them. I would extend that answer, John, to, to books like uh, the Gospel uh, according to Barnabas or the Gospel according to Thomas or Mary Magdalene. You know, I think most of the time they were written uh, letters that were written with uh, with the right intent, but we know they weren't written from God. That's the, that's the key thing. And as Christians, we need to be sure that we have the, the, the God-breathed Scripture, the very Scriptures that, that, that God's Spirit wrote, um, because those are the perfect ones. Those are the Scriptures that are useful for doctrine. Those are the Scriptures that are u- useful for life, for correction, for rebuking. Uh, we need to understand that very, very carefully. If, if we apply scriptural status to books that weren't written by God, then we're really going to get messed up. So, John, I hope that answers your question. By the way, John, a great example of this that we have in our New Testament is we know that there were three letters written to the church in Corinth. Paul wrote a letter. It's not a part of our canon. They responded to that letter, and Paul's response, we know, is 1 Corinthians. Uh, that letter was sent back. There were more questions. Paul wrote Second Corinthians about six months later, and and that was written by God as well. But we have this first letter that we know Paul wrote, but there's no record of or no copy of it all. So what our Bible contains are only those scriptures that were written by God himself. So, John, thanks a lot. Let's go to Carrie from San Antonio Online, too. Carrie, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Yeah, I had a question about the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Did we lose you, Carrie? Carrie, Carrie, we lost you. You you broke up. Are you still there? We're having some troubles with Carrie, so I'll take a question, and if my producer can get him back connected, we'll figure out what the problem is. Carrie, please be patient and hold on. I think you asked a question about the Anglican Church, and I'd like to hear what the question is, so please be patient and try again. Let me take a question while we're waiting. Ricky said, we're asked this question, how should I view commentaries or even sermons by men who've been found to have moral failures? Uh, Ricky, these are really hard questions, and, and I don't have a, a satisfactory answer for you. Uh, I'm one of those people that has a very hard time reading or listening to people, to men uh, who weren't able to live what they taught or, or live what they preached. Uh, that's just my thing. Now, uh, um, some of the work is very, very good. But if it didn't have value for them, if they couldn't take what they knew, um, then, then I, I, I just, it's just not something that really resonates with me. Let me come back to this, Rick. I think we got Carrie back. Carrie, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Pastor Ron. Sorry about that. Okay, that's, that's okay. Yeah, I had a quick question, um, and I'll be short, and then I'll hang up um, and okay. listen to your answer. But I wanted to ask you about the Anglican Church or the Church mm -hmm. of England. I just mm -hmm. wanted to see if um, if they were a Christian church and to mm -hmm. see uh, what also what Bible they use um, and kind of just get your thoughts on that. Um, okay, okay. There was, and that was it. Okay. Thank you, Carrie. I can do that. Uh, the Anglican Church is a, um, um, a church that, that at least in theory, holds to the essentials of the historic Christian faith. Um, our uh, Western Anglicans, we call them Episcopal Church, um, they're, they're a church that historically um, wasn't Roman in the fact that they, they didn't want to be Catholic, uh, but they wanted to keep a lot of Catholicism. Uh, the Lutheran Church is another example of that, uh, and um, the Anglican Church is uh, does fall within the, the boundaries of the historic Christian faith. Now, there are some problems. One, uh, if you've ever been to England, and, and I have, um, uh, the church is absolutely dead. The only churches there that are having any impact at all are churches that aren't connected to a denomination. They're churches that, that uh, the Spirit of God, we have a Calvary Chapel in Westminster, um, just a half a block from Westminster Abbey. Uh, and, uh, and, and boy, the Lord is really moving there. Um, but anytime you nationalize the National Church of England, anytime you nationalize a religion, there's going to be all kinds of problems. So um, I, I think a lot of their doctrine is, is uh, aberrant, um, but, um, but certainly as a whole, uh, carry the, the the Anglican Church is Christian in nature. Now, one of the problems here again that we deal with when we're talking about whether the Episcopal Church here, the Catholic Church, or the Anglican Church, uh, is that there isn't a real teaching uh, about the need to be born again. You know, if you're baptized in the church, if you're baptized as an infant, uh, if you're partaking of the elements of communion, uh, if you're trying to be a good person, uh, there's nobody there to tell you that that we can't do anything on our own. We can't do anything on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, in the Anglican Church, um, there may be an exception somewhere. I'm sure there is. Uh, when Jesus was writing to the seven churches uh, in Revelation, even those that were really, really aberrant that Jesus said, I always have a remnant. So uh, I actually know a few people who are Anglicans, uh, and I believe that a couple of them are really born again. But, but that would be uh, an exception rather than the rule. And when you've got a church institution, Carrie, that isn't teaching the need uh, um, to be born again, um, then, then you've got all kinds of problems. We also have an emphasis on the, the, the catechism, an emphasis on um, um, corporate prayer, and I don't mean a bunch of people getting together, but I mean being reciting the, the prayers. The word escapes me now, What the word that describes them. Uh, but it's just something you have to be really, really careful of. We do have 
some Anglicans here. Uh, the one thing, the most beneficial thing I can say about the Anglicans as opposed to the Episcopal Church here is that while the Episcopal Church is completely sold out to to uh, the, the, the homosexual agenda as it relates to religion, uh, the Anglican Church is not. They've not, by and large, ordained uh, gay priests. Um, uh, they don't uh, openly advocate homosexuality uh, as an acceptable lifestyle. The Episcopal Church almost, and I say almost advisedly, almost exclusively does. Uh, so, yes, they are orthodox in their beliefs. Uh, they appeal to the historical Christian church. They have an over, uh, an unhealthy overemphasis on the value of church history. Um, church started by Henry VIII uh, because he didn't agree with the Catholic Church regarding divorce. So we know that, and of course the Archbishop, Duke of Canterbury, is the um, vicar of God uh, in the in the in the uh, Anglican Church. I think I said this already, Carrie, but I just want to be sure we we went to Westminster Abbey, and it was just weird and evil feeling. So. Again, there's good, there's bad, but but they're not outside the boundaries of historic Christianity. We have 30 minutes left in today's program. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We will be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our monday program uh ricky i I didn't mean to short uh, my answer to you on your how do i view commentaries or even sermons by men who've been found to have moral failures um but but we had the caller the the issue so let me deal with that and then we'll get a phone call that we've got here waiting for us uh it's honestly ricky this is one of the things that i have been unable to work out logically in my own life Uh, some of the best bible teachers i know are men who were living lives in sin uh, while they were preaching great messages. And um, all I can tell you is that from my perspective, just for me personally, uh, I can't find any real value in listening to them again. Same teaching, but because of what I know, and I know that they didn't really believe what they were saying, those are really hard things really, really hard things. So I, I apologize. This is something you're going to kind of have to work out on your own. Um, I just haven't found a satisfactory way to to understand it up to this point anyway. So, Ricky, I'm sorry. That's the best I can do. Let's go to David on line one from San Antonio. David, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, Brother Ron. I appreciate it. My question is Thank simple. You. Um, I've asked two other friends of mine uh, that are pastors between here, Houston, San Antonio, and they couldn't give me a, speci- a specific answer. I just want to know something specifically. Uh, I meditate 30 minutes every day, uh, and I, I, uh, I'm obedient to God's Word, do tithes and everything else. But something has been bothering me, has bothered me for the last six months. Can Satan or the angels of Satan or his agents because it, it says it different ways in the Bible. Can they read my mind? Yes, great question. I, I will give you something biblical. I mean, can I, I find I will, it in, in, the, in on my Bible? Okay, I, I will. I'll do the best I can, David, and uh, and I'll not beat around the bush. Uh, there is no evidence at all in Scripture that Satan can read our minds. Now, he can plant thoughts in our minds. And as you're meditating on the Word, the Holy Spirit is right there with you. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. John tells us that in 1 John. But one of the things that we have to understand is that the the devil is probably the greatest psychologist in the history of the world. And and he, he's the student of human behavior and he's always prowling around looking for opportunities to to, to, to devour according to first Peter chapter five. So we have to be aware that he's always there and he's always looking for an opening. But there is no 
evidence at all in Scripture. I can't give you a verse because the the, the absence of, of a verse um, doesn't disprove the negative. There's there's no indication at all that he can read our minds. As I said, he can, however, predict our behavior because he's got a long history with us and we know uh, he knows what our track record is. Let me also say this. We know that he can plant thoughts into our minds, David. So while he can't read your mind, he can plant thoughts, he can plant words, uh, he can tempt us uh, just as he tempted Jesus. We know, for example, from the Chronicles account of David, the end of David's life, we know that he planted in David the thought to count the numbers of the fighting men. David's, in my view, David's greatest sin, uh, a sin that God himself carried out the judgment on. But, but he, the source of that thought was Satan himself. So while Satan can read or cannot read our minds, he can plant thoughts, and then we have to take those thoughts captive, according to the Apostle Paul, and make them obedient to Christ. Now, when you talk about meditating, I don't know for sure whether you mean um, meditating like yoga or meditating on the Word of God. If you're meditating on the Word of God, you're in a really, really solid place, David. Um, we don't want to empty our minds. That's the one thing that we have to understand. We use the word meditation. David uses it. It's a good thing. But the, the, the meaning that, that meditation has in our culture uh, has come to, to be a little bit different than that. We meditate, we empty our minds uh, in search of some spiritual experience. And if that's the case, we're probably not going to have a Holy Spirit experience, but we're going to have a spiritual experience that isn't good. So depending on what you mean by meditating, uh, if you're meditating on the Word, if you're meditating on the person of Jesus, if you're meditating on hearing Him speak to your heart, and again, when He does that, we have to be sure that it's consistent with what the Word of God tells us, then you're in a really, really solid place. And I, for one, am not willing to give up this word meditation to the world. Uh, there's nothing at all wrong as long as what and who you're meditating on is Jesus and the Word of God. If you're just trying to empty your mind, then I think you're in a bad place. But but even then, the enemy can't read your mind. You know, David, one of the things that I've had people ask me uh, that is sort of related, uh, people say that I don't want to pray out loud because I don't want Satan to hear my prayers. Uh, the reason they would say that is because they know that, that the enemy can't read their minds. However, we don't even have to worry about that. If if we're praying out loud, certainly the enemy is there to hear our prayers. And, and if we're with Jesus and we're talking to Jesus, we're in the safest place that we can possibly be. Um, Jesus is infinitely stronger than the enemy of our souls. And I think we have to focus on that. So, David, he cannot read your mind. There is zero evidence at all that he can. And there is much evidence that we are protected by God, especially in that most sacred time of prayer. So keep meditating. If you're meditating, it's on the Word of God. Thank you, David. I hope that gives you the answer that you want or that you're looking for. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is a question from Deborah. I have a personal question for you and Paula. How do you balance ministry demands with having enough time for each other? Uh, Deborah, maybe Paula will address this on Thursday's program uh, from her perspective. But let me give you my perspective. Um, one of the best things, let me, I'll brag on Paula for a minute. One of the best things about my wife is that she truly knows she has no rights. She's not her own. She's bought with a price. And because of that, she has become truly a ministry partner. We're not looking to balance ministry demands with our own needs for time with one another. We're both all in all the time. And I think that's the only place where anybody's ever going to find balance. We don't find balance by saying, okay, we're going to sit time for, for church on Sunday, or maybe we'll go another day of the week. But the rest of the time is our time. Paula and I have Thursday. Uh, it is for the, from the, the entire time that we've been here in San Antonio, which now is almost 24 years. Um, 
We've had Thursday, which is our date day. It's a day that we set aside just for us. We told the church from the very beginning, don't bug us on Thursday unless it's an absolute emergency, and we understand that. But at the same time, at the same time, uh, I wanted Paula to know, especially with my background as a workaholic, that she wasn't going to be a, a ministry, um, a victim of a ministry workaholic. I wanted her to know, one, that she's in this with me, and two, that, that she's more important to me. And, and I wanted her to have the time with me to, to demonstrate that. Now, over the years, date days changed a lot. It's not like we go out and do a lot of really fun activity stuff. Um, but um, we're, we're just together is what it means. And now we've, we'll take people out to breakfast or, or out for counseling or we'll, we'll just do things, but, but always together. And that's the way we want it to be. Uh, we don't worry about having enough time for each other because we're both completely committed to the Lord. And he always makes sure that we have the time that we need. Now, a lot of that time today... To be very honest with you, I kind of stayed home and just relaxed instead of coming into the office, or at least until the radio program or men's retreat. We had so many other things going on. I was really, really tired. So Paula and I just kind of hung out together. And she ministered to me, and we went out and had breakfast, and we just kind of sat around. So uh, the Lord always makes sure there's enough time. Usually, Deborah, when you ask a question like this, um, it's it's a husband or a wife competing with ministry for time with wife instead of the wives and the husbands being partners in the ministry together. I think that's the most important thing. One of the things that we do here at Calvary Chapel is do our absolute best to encourage husbands and wives, and if possible, their children to serve together. We have ministries that whole families can serve in. And if they understand that, then they develop a sense of how to serve together. And they don't have to worry about this struggle with one another for time. So, Deborah, that's my perspective. You can see after the weekend, my after the weekend, my voice is, is, is tired as well. But um, uh, Paul and I, we just don't struggle. If... if Paula needs to be ministering. I'm all for it. If I need to be ministering, she's all for it. Uh, and um, if the truth were known, and Paula's too nice to say this, she probably has too much time <laughs> with me, and it would be a nice break when she doesn't. So that's the best I can do, Deborah. Maybe Paula will have a different perspective. Here is a question from Ted. Can you give your view on sending people into the mission field with regard to finances and how to do fundraising? Ted, I'm going to give you way, way more than you want, probably, because this is a particular hot button of mine. In fact, uh, I was just involved in a, in a meeting last week about this very issue. I absolutely detest the way that we do missions in the West. I detest it. We turn missionaries called by God into fundraisers. Go get all the money you need so that you, when you get there, you don't have to depend on God. Uh, hit up your relatives, uh, send out letters. Um, and then uh, just do the best that you can. Hold on. Excuse me, please. My voice is more tired than I thought. I'm sorry, Ted. Um, we turn them into fundraisers instead of missionaries. And you can't find that model in the Bible. You simply cannot find that model in Scripture. Paul was given a vision from a man from Macedonia. So what did he do? He went. He didn't wait for resources. He didn't ask his friends and family members and church members for money. He went and what we've done is we've removed the faith from missions work. We have them come back in the country. They do some fundraising all over again. They speak in churches asking for money. Ted, I can tell you that I, I've never allowed anybody in all of our years here to ask my people for money for anything. Had somebody sneak it in one time and they won't be invited back, but, but they knew they weren't supposed to. But, but the whole idea is we have to depend on God when we go. Nobody supported us when we came to San Antonio, Texas. 
we send out churches. We've planted, I think, now 29 churches. And when we send people out, uh, we, we don't ask people to give a love offering for them so that they go. We tell them to go when you're convinced God wants you to go. And that's the biblical model. We're getting ready to send Pastor Chris, our uh, Spanish language pastor here, uh, who does a Spanish language Bible study every Sunday night. Uh, we're getting ready to send him into the interior of Mexico. He and his wife, Elvira, are planning a church. I'd appreciate your prayers for them, by the way. Um, uh, and, and they're going to go when God says go. But they know they're called, so they go. So why would we wait to go until we have the money? And I think it is really an abomination the way we do it. We had a young woman in our church, a, 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 just a beautiful young woman, uh, who felt she was called to the mission field and she wanted to uh, go to um, missionary school for gospel for Asia. Um, and, and she said, well, will you give me your blessing? I said, no. They're going to turn you into a fundraiser. There were other things wrong with gospel for Asia. And um, she went anyway and was home in just a few months because she saw all the things that I was warning her about. If, if you're going to go anywhere, Ted, you got to go depending only on God. You know, if somebody gives you some money, God's made a gift, but don't let your needs be known. Just let people know what you're doing. Ask them to pray for you. If God wants them to support you, he will put it in their heart to do it. That's what happened with Paul. That's why he was sent into Macedonia. He was sent there because it turned out that the Philippian churches were the ones that supported his ministry for the rest of his life on earth. In the meantime, what did he do? He worked to support his ministry. So we, we just do it completely backwards, Ted, and it, it's, I think, a decided lack of faith uh, when we tell people, don't go until you get all the money. I've actually had ministry missionary organizations tell people that, well, if you don't collect the amount of money, that's just God telling you not to go. That is absolute nonsense. So, Ted, that's um, more than you wanted to know, but please don't focus on raising money. Just be obedient to the Lord. If he tells you to go, say, Jesus, now I'm your problem. He'll take care of his problem. So, that's my answer. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is an anonymous question: Should I be a groomsman in a wedding if my friend has been living with his soon-to-be wife before marriage? Anonymous: I personally would not, uh, unless um, your friend is repentant. If the girl that he's been living with is repentant. And if they want to get right with God, I wouldn't want to do anything that would give a tacit approval of the way they've been living. So my answer would be no, I wouldn't do it. Um, that answer will be criticized. People will think you're being judgmental. But remember, we're ambassadors for Christ. And we're supposed to be set apart in this world. And somebody, especially this, if this friend is, is somebody you care enough about that he would ask you to be a groomsman, he cares enough about you, but you care enough about him that you want him and his soon-to-be wife in heaven, then they've got to deal with Jesus. Now, if they are not believers, then it's possible the Lord would say, yeah, go. You can be a, a living witness. But if... if if they claim to be believers and they've been living together, um, then the answer would be no, unless there is genuine repentance uh, and, and they want to get right with God. Maybe the Lord wants to use you anonymous. We had some men, you know, when 200 men are together for a weekend, um, there's always people who um, God is really convicting. Uh, you heard Felipe at the beginning of the show talk about the power of God that was there. It was amazing to watch. And I had several men who came up and said, well, uh, what you said in your message, Pastor Ron, or what Pastor Eric, who is our speaker, said in his message, well, well I'm living in sin. We did a Q&A, uh, much like this one, uh, with the men, and, and just not recorded or anything, but uh, men could get really, really specific. 
and and several of them talked about this very thing. Well, well, if we love each other, what's so wrong with it? And the answer is, well, God says it's wrong. God says you're defiling the wife that that you that, that you're looking for, the woman that he's that you say he's brought into your into your life. And you know the greatest thing about this anonymous was Friday nights after go. These men were repenting publicly before two hundred men. They were repenting and 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 making a commitment to get right with God and stay right with God and to change their living circumstances. One of those men, you know, one of my new heroes in life, one of those men brought the woman that he's been living with, uh, a mother of his children, uh, to church yesterday. And after his experience at the retreat, she gave her life to Jesus Christ yesterday in church. In fact, he brought her here and before service, somebody was talking to her, just having been introduced, God had the exact right person. And before church even started, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And then she made that public profession by coming forward. So we got to care enough about people to want them in heaven. Rather than just being their friend. A real friend is somebody who wants their friend to be right with God. Here is another anonymous question. I'm not sure I understand it, but I'll do the best I can. How should Christians act regarding civil rights for homosexuals? Should we advocate discriminating against them? If I read your question right, Anonymous, uh, we who are Christians should not discriminate against anybody. Civil rights are those rights for people who live in this nation, in this world depending on the government that they, 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 they're, they're governed by. Um, we should never discriminate against anybody. Now, here is the difference between their idea of discriminating and, I think, a biblical position. I'm not discriminating against somebody by saying uh, men should not sleep with men or women with women or, or men should marry men or women should marry women. You see, there's a, a Bible that trumps our rights in this nation. But even still, as believers, Anonymous, if somebody is living in a sinful sexual relationship, hetero or homosexual, um, they still have the same rights in this country that you and I do. So we shouldn't try to deny them those rights. Again, when it comes to marriage, it's different because God's law trumps national law. We're not discriminating against somebody by telling them what they're doing is wrong. But yeah, they should have the same rights to jobs. They should have the same rights to promotions. They should have the same rights to go places and do things that that we who are believers have. So we should never advocate discriminating against them. Uh, but, but again, remember, we're not discriminating against them when we say what you're doing is wrong. We want them in heaven. We're not discriminating against them by saying God gets to make the rules in marriage, not, not the Supreme Court, not a nation. God does. That's not discrimination. They will cry discrimination, but it's not discrimination at all. But uh, in terms of job performance, in terms of, of anything and everything that, that we have the right to do, everybody should have that same freedom to do what they want. You know, one of the things that God's made very clear is he gives us free will. We get to make our own choices. For us to discriminate against people who don't make the choice we want them to make, I think would be dishonoring to the Lord. So, yeah, if they want to buy a house next door to you, uh, who are we to stop them? Be a good neighbor, love them, share Jesus with them. Um, not a turn or burn kind of Jesus, but the Jesus of love and grace and mercy, the Jesus that wants to forgive them of all of their sins. But never discriminate against anybody. Certainly, we don't want to misrepresent Jesus. And these are the very people that Jesus would go talk to himself if he were walking the earth now as he was 2,000 years ago. So I hope that helps. We're, what, three minutes? A little over three minutes? Here is a question from Matthew. Uh, Pastor Ron, I know universalism is wrong. Yep, three minutes just popped up. I know universalism is wrong, but how can we explain to people that more than half of all people are going to hell? How can a loving God do that? Uh, Matthew, you have to understand the whole idea of, of, of who we are as people. Um, this may shock you, but John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, 
he tells us that 100% of people are going to hell. 100% of people are going to hell. Jesus told Nicodemus that we are condemned already. We're condemned when we are born. Why? Because we have a sin nature, and a sin nature means that we sin. And sin separates us from God, loving or otherwise. So here's the grace and the love and the mercy of God is he died. He became one of us so that he could die for us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So he died so that we who are going to hell don't have to go. And 100% of people have a choice. If they want to make the wrong choice, that's not on God at all. That's on humans. So God doesn't send anybody to hell. And this whole wretched, wicked idea of universalism, because God is a God of love, some mushy kind of unholy love, just demonstrates that we don't understand love at all. And I think it's way more than half. Jesus said, the road to salvation is narrow, only few find it. And that broad road that leads to destruction is wide and well-traveled. That's the road that people are walking, but it's because they choose to. So God doesn't send anyone to hell. And the truth is, and I've said this before in this program, Matthew, that it's so hard to go to hell that we have to literally go over his dead body to do so. Let me rephrase. We have to literally go over his dead and risen body to do so. So explain to people, people you're concerned about, that God has given everybody sort of a life raft in the middle of a storm. All we got to do is get in it. That's why Jesus and he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through We can all go to heaven. All we have to do is make that choice. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Sorry for my voice, but that's what happens when you're out in nature for three days. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. Remember, men's, women's Bible studies tonight, 7 o'clock. God bless you. See you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.